morning and welcome to Rising Fridays. Ryan, I have two questions for you. One, why aren't you here today? And two, was it worth it? <laughs> well, I'm not there because I went and stupidly got myself COVID at the fish shows at Madison Square Garden in New York City last weekend. Turns out this was a massive super spreader event. The irony, of course, is that these were the New Year's shows. They were supposed to run from right up until New Year's until right after Omicron was going around. So they said, look, let's pause this until April so we can keep everybody safe, make sure every, everybody's vaccinated who comes. And COVID said, cool, see you in April. <laughs> and here we are. Uh, Variety, I, I have even better stats than Variety has in their in their magazine. So like uh, about 12 of us went to the show and so far seven of us have tested positive. A few others have s symptoms, but not testing positive. I only finally tested positive yesterday, but I'm f starting to feel a lot better. Like I was feeling worse when I was testing negative. Was it worth, the shows were great. I think whether it's worth it kind of ask me in a couple of weeks, you know, like, <laughs> If I got any, if I got anybody infected who has serious complications, then for sure, then it wasn't. Uh, but we could, we should also talk about fish for a second. Like people, people have been, you know, thinking of fish as kind of a, a legacy act that maybe you go and check them out at some point to the way that you might see like Bonnie Raitt or the Rolling Stones, you know, before they kind of fade off into the sunset. But fish is in a renaissance. They're like, they're reinventing themselves. <laughs> And the music world is just asleep on this, and so I think I think people need to wake up to to what Fish has been doing in its in its kind of new incarnation. Fish the is in super a spreader event aside, I think that, I think they are. I think because they went through a period where they were all drug addicted and and miserable in like the late late two thousands, early early twenty tens, and were not terribly good. Uh, but they have come back. They're you know as far as people say, they're completely sober now. Uh, and kind of rededicated to the craft, and then they're then they're kind of recreating themselves along the way. It's 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 something to watch. I don't think it's just nostalgia for the '90s. I think this is a this is a new and interesting band. So I would I, I would I would say if if you're thinking of them just as like old fogies going out and playing the hits, then you're misunderstanding what they're up to in this new incarnation. Ryan likes doing the show this way because he can wear Birkenstocks um, and cargo shorts. <laughs> I have slippers on. That's right. <laughs> so speaking I, of, yeah. go ahead, Ryan. No, I was saying I started uh, feeling symptoms, I think, right around the time that Fauci was saying what you're about to say. Oh, yeah. Well, so this is an ongoing, especially looking into next week, this Washington, D.C., where we are, is buzzing with excitement over the White House Correspondence Center. Something similar to that, the Gridiron Dinner last month, um, or maybe even earlier this month, did turn out to be a super spreader event. Now, Dr. Fauci walked back comments that he made where he said the U.S. is no longer in the pandemic phase. He told NPR, quote, I want to clarify one thing. I probably should have said the acute component of the pandemic phase. And I understand how that can lead to some misinterpretation. I was talking about the acute, the acute fomenting phase, and everyone agrees we're not there. We're not getting 900,000 new infections a day. And he goes on to say, is the pandemic still here? Absolutely. So just to refresh your memory, here's Fauci's earlier statement about the pandemic being over. We are at a low level right now. So if you're saying, are we out of the pandemic phase in this country? We are. What we hope to do, I don't believe, and I've, and I've spoken about this widely, 
we're not going to eradicate this virus. If we can keep that level very low and intermittently vaccinate people, and I don't know how often that would have to be, Judy, that might be every year, that might be longer in order to keep that level low. But right now, we are not in the pandemic phase in this country. I mean, <laughs> this guy, it's unbelievable. And again, these his words really do matter. And he just keeps talking as though it's fine if he's going back on different like the pandemic for so many people that that matters a lot. What he says, because it makes a big difference in everybody's life. And it has for two years. And he's so flippant about it because these distinctions are important. Um, the distinction between if we're absolutely out of a pandemic and whether we're still in the acute phase or whatever he wants to call it, that's a big deal. It does matter. Um, and I think it's amazing how flippant he is with his words. And maybe if he didn't talk so much, he seems to be obsessed with going on every media show. Um, even, maybe if he didn't talk so much, he wouldn't run into these problems. I don't know, Ryan. Do you find that as frustrating as I do? Well, if he had said this last week, then I could blame him for going to the fish show and getting, <laughs> I blame him anyway. <laughs> getting COVID. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to go back in time and blame and blame him. But I mean, he, he, he didn't make it very clearly and his job is to make his points clearly. He's, he's a public health official. His job is to communicate underneath what he's saying. I think there is a reality there that look, there aren't 900,000 infections a day. There aren't, you know, more than a thousand, 2000, 3000 people dying every day. There aren't, you know, ICU beds filled up. There aren't hospitals uh, shutting down. You want uh, elective surgery, you can go get elective surgery. And, you know, with with the wild variant and with Delta, even with Delta as the vaccine was was mixing in, they were much more powerful. And so the you know viruses you know tend tend to evolve down into you know weaker variants so that they can pass more easily through the population. And that's what's happened so far. So we were in a period of time in, in 2020 where there was this really you know extreme panic. Uh, that because of the, the amount of death and suffering that was being produced. And so while case counts are incredibly high, we're not, ha we're not having that kind of kind of social collapse and, and, and collapse of humanity that we were having back then. I also, and this, I don't have an answer to this, but I'm, it was something I was thinking about this week. How do we, like, where did all these case count numbers come from? In other words, so I tested positive yesterday. My, my wife tested positive as, as well. We're, CDC doesn't know that. New York Times doesn't know that. Like, I'm not calling anybody. Maybe eventually I'll tell my doctor or something. But most I don't really have a relationship with my primary doctor. Most Americans don't have a relationship with their primary doctor. So do you know how it is that we see these numbers move? Because I have to assume that thousands of people are testing, having a rough week or a rough couple of days, getting over it and the medical industry never finds out, you know, CVS might lose out on some, you know, it might get some extra vitamin D sales. But other than that, there's no interaction with the system. So where, where are these some of these numbers coming from? Are we missing thousands of cases? I, I think we almost we almost certainly are. Um, and that's again, this this process of getting back to some semblance of normalcy, it's really important to the country. And if if Dr. Fauci were not so, I think, casual and flippant and continuing to sort of 
uh, do these like walkbacks with his own words, then it, this process, people would be able to trust when it's okay and when like what normal should look like. But he blew that credibility like literally years ago at this point. And so I genuinely think that's why going ahead, people see news like uh, the Super Spreader Fish concert. They're going to see probably next week that the White House Correspondents Center was a super spreader event. And that means politicians, everyone's going to keep wearing their masks. But normal people have moved on and want to move on and want to feel like they're safe moving on. And at some point, obviously, we have to say it is safe to move on. Um, and a lot of states have done way better than the federal government with this. So I just think it's a it's unfortunate that because all of the credibility, I think, of the political establishment and even the, the medical establishment um, was was blown so long ago that now people don't know what to do when, of course, you know, when you have a pandemic, that virus is going to continue to spread. There are going to be new variants and you, you can't just get rid of it, let alone in two years. Um, but now it's, it's hard for people to sort of, it, it's hard for us to land on the obvious, you know, cost benefit of, of what it means to get back to normal and still, you know, have fish concerts basically yeah and i think safe safe is relative and i think right now it's just objectively speaking much much safer today than it was in in 2020 certainly at the at, at some of those peaks but it's obviously not as safe as it was in in 2019 we're now at the place where people are just finally they're kind of just making informed or they're they're just making informed decisions which is kind of where we should have been I feel like the entire time because people don't want to suffer and die and yeah. they don't want their friends and loved ones to suffer and die. And so if you get them the right information, eventually they're going to make the right decision. Because the reason that viruses evolve down into less powerful variants is because humanity for thousands of years, you know, if they are if a virus is too powerful, people social distance like people have been doing that for thousands of years in, in during the plague times. You, you didn't need the CDC. You didn't need Dr. Fauci to tell you to keep six feet of distance or tell you to stay home. People would stay home because they understood that going out and getting the plague was awful. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's so we we we, could, we understand that that that's how humanity responds. And so you don't really have to force it onto people. You can just give them the best information and let them. Uh, make decisions for themselves. And I think to your point, not just normal people, abnormal people too here in Washington, DC, I bet you're going to see them. You won't see me there, uh, but you're going to, I think you're going to see parties packed. I think you're going to see people, you know, really, you know, having a good time and saying, you know what, we're probably going to get COVID this weekend at the White House Correspondents Dinner, but we missed it so much that they're not going to say it's worth it, but it's a, a risk that they're uh, willing to take. Yeah, and that's why I think this was a, a good subject um, to talk about right here, because I see this sort of couple weeks as a test, um, a, a real test of like whether people are willing to accept those sorts of uh, risks going forward. But Ryan, other than the, the Fauci walk back, was there anything that stood out to you? Uh, anything else that stood out to you this week? No, I've been just in this hole. Uh, all week. So you, I'm, I'm going to like learn. Chris Cuomo emerging from his Hamptons basement with you. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to learn just like our viewers what happened this week uh, from this show. So, yeah, Sounds I'm, good. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> well, we'll tell you what's on our radars right after this.
All right, Ryan, what is on your radar today? Well, I wanted to highlight one of my favorite Twitter exchanges from last week in response to the news that Elon Musk would be buying Twitter. It was started by reporter Jacob Silverman, who said this. He said, what's to stop Musk from tasking an engineer on day one with searching through the Twitter DMs, which aren't encrypted or ephemeral, of politicians, journalists, and critics? And so Matt Iglesias responded, and it looks like he thought he had Jacob caught in some political hypocrisy, all of a sudden concerned about privacy only because Musk was going to be in charge. Iglesias said, was anything stopping the previous set of executives? Well, Jacob responded to that and said, well, in fact, he has been on this story for quite a while. And he said, no, which is why a Saudi spying was able to successfully operate within Twitter, unmasking dissidents in the process, and then got away with it. And so Jacob had written a story for the New Republic about exactly one year ago about precisely this phenomenon, which is that Saudi Arabia, which is one of the heavy, the biggest investors in Twitter, had twice, at, at least twice, been infected by a spy ring, which was, which was accessing uh, Twitter DMs privately of, of dissidents and then using that information to unmask people, arrest them, uh, torture them, and according to... Uh, Ali Al-Ahmed, who is not a friend of the show, but should be. We should we should have him on more as Saudi dissident. He's suing Twitter. He claims uh, that, you know, people that he was in contact with were abducted and, and have been and have been disappeared. And there's every reason to believe uh, that Ali Al-Ahmed is, you know, has a lot of credibility on this question. The, one, one of the Twitter spies, uh, Ali Al-Zabara, uh, was on the FBI's most wanted list. This is, uh, you know, this this is not this is not a conspiracy theory that is just being uh, kicked around. This is actual uh, Saudi policy that was that was put that was that was put into effect and was busted by the feds. But despite being busted, they have continued uh, having uh, this 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 type of access. One reason for that is that they are such big owners of Twitter. Prince uh, Prince Al Walid bin Talal, uh, you know, was something like a nine percent uh, was something like a nine percent owner of. Uh, Twitter. He was famously kind of uh, rounded up at the Ritz-Carlton back in 2017, and there are a lot of rumors uh, that that Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince, actually now, uh, as a result of that, controls his voting shares. People have said that uh, MBS had, controls more voting shares than Jack Dorsey does, and so uh, so the, what, what this does is it it raises a question for uh, for Elon Musk, you know. If if he's if he's concerned about freedom, if he if he's really go, buying Twitter to push back against authoritarians, is this something he's going to address? Because it hasn't been addressed yet. And Jacob Silverman uh, concluded his piece uh, pretty succinctly. I want to just read that he wrote: More than five years have passed since the FBI told Twitter it had a Saudi spy problem. The company has since promised tightened procedures and access controls, but for many dissidents, it's too late. Put another way. A murderous autocratic government abused its close relationship with Twitter to cultivate spies who provided information that then got innocent people thrown in jail. That government remains one of Twitter's largest outside shareholders and continues to harass and monitor its citizens via the microblogging service. Now, of course, Saudi Arabia isn't the only autocratic country, and it's not, in fact, the only democratic country that would like this type of access to Twitter DMs to unmask critics. Uh, China, of course, would love to be able to figure out 
you know, who who it is that is uh, questioning uh, government governmental policy, whether it's within China or importantly outside of China, because China has been known to go into other countries and and rendition people, you know, uh, back back to China the way that the United States has done during the global war on terror. And of course, the U.S. too. The U.S. has worked with big tech, as we know from Edward Snowden, in order to have back doors into different platforms. What they've been deeply frustrated by is, is apps like uh, Signal uh, that that are encrypted end to end and don't even allow people within the company access to them. And so the U.S. also uh, would love to have this type of access. And so it's one it's one thing to have a a billionaire who controls Twitter if that billionaire is you know genuinely free of outside influence. But we don't know exactly you know who has leverage, literal leverage, lending leverage over Musk. There's a lot of reports that tens of billions may have come from Chinese sources. We know that Musk is heavily dependent on on U.S. government contracts for his other businesses, U.S. government uh, and U.S. government subsidies. He's, he's dependent on government subsidies all over the world. And so if those governments come to him and say, hey, we'd like a little bit of access here, what is Musk going to say under pressure? And so to me, if he wants to send a serious signal, he should t- hands off, tell his engineering team to make you know, number one on the roadmap, the, the end-to-end encryption of direct messages that, that make it so that even people within Twitter uh, cannot access them so that when a government comes to Musk and says, hey, remember how we lent you $20 billion for that company? We'd love to know who's running this account and where their location is. That Musk can say, well, I don't know because we've designed it so that I can't know. If Musk doesn't do that, then he's not serious about freedom. I don't know, em- Emily, uh, do you think that this is something that Musk is actually going to look at or do you think that he just wants to kind of do Twitter polls and and, and allow kind of fringy people back onto the site. No, I think he's probably very serious about this because I think it's the type of thing that users want. And as a sort of businessman, he would understand that. But this is one of the big problems with surveillance capitalism, right, is that you have these massive, massive amounts of data in the hands um, or that can basically be bought uh, by people who are extremely wealthy and and necessarily then have all of these different geopolitical connections. You already raised the issue of China. um, And the point of the, the Saudi story is a really, really good one. Um, but I think what you're what you're hitting at is something that's even broader than Twitter. Um, it's it's the entire like mm. business model that our economy is now sort of predicated on is uh, snapping up all of our data, our communications, and putting them in private hands with no safeguards like encryption. Um, and so I actually I do think Elon Musk because he's sort of uh, very much, I don't know, I don't know the right word, but he's, he's, he understands, I think, the consumer better than a lot of uh, people in Silicon Valley certainly do, and especially than a lot of people in the media do. Um, and, and so I think he knows how important that is. But I do agree with you, Ryan, that this is a good test um, because there's basically no reason not to do this um, at this point. I mean, I'm sure, I, I don't know what kind of manpower and sort of financial resources it would take. I don't know how difficult it would be. Um, and Twitter is not an exceptionally well-run company. They have 7,000 plus employees. Um, he's going to have to, I'm, I'm sure he's going to be making cuts and reports indicate as much. So I know that he's uh, going to be doing a lot, um, but this should absolutely be a priority. And, and we'll, knew, we'll know soon enough whether it is. 
writing him probably won't have to make cuts. You know, probably lose a ton of engineers and and other staff, and so then could probably just backfill at that point. But and just so people understand, one of the ways that this works, it, so Ali Al Ahmed is he's suing Twitter right now, saying that they negligently allowed Saudi Arabia to hack into his his account, and it wasn't. It wasn't that now he's he's in no way completely safe, even though he lives in you know suburban Washington. Uh, but he's he's pretty safe. Like they, you know, if you know, as long as he doesn't leave, you know, the you know the United States, uh, Saudi Arabia hasn't gotten to the point where they're you know going after you know physically going after people on uh, U.S. soil. Except there's there's a case in California that's of a Saudi citizen, but that's kind of. That's, that's kind of a wild card at this point. What they, what they would do when they hacked him wasn't going after him. They were trying to figure out who was communicating with him. Mm-hmm. And this is an old kind of intelligence uh, technique. You find somebody who is a who is a well-known dissident. And so as people are getting involved in the periphery of dissident activity, a lot of them would reach out to him kind of for guidance or for connections. And so instead of going after him, what they would do is they'd go after everybody that reached that reached out to him. And like you said, this is not just Twitter. Uh, FBI does this. Let's say there's uh, some extremist that they are, are that they're surveilling. They'll watch that person's YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And then people people who are commenting in that YouTube channel, they don't need a warrant for that. That's just that's just public stuff. But they'll but they'll then they'll go at then they'll start surveilling every single person that commented there. And so. You know what? What Twitter needs to not do is not make uh, Saudi Arabia's job any easier, given what their track record is on human rights. Saudi Arabia or China, or as you said, any autocratic yeah. right? Or the Absolutely. United States? Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. If the United States comes to Musk and says, "We want to know who this person is," Musk needs to have the technical ability to say, "I can't tell you. I don't know. Like, there's no way for me to tell you because if you just leave it up to." one person's kind of ethics and, and strength of character. Let's pretend that he's he's the strongest moral character and has, has the most intense fiber uh, that of anyone on the entire planet. There's so much power and pressure behind it that eventually, you know, somebody's going to buckle and, and you and you just start to say, what's worth more preserving, you know, my control of this uh, thriving uh, company, what might not be thriving, uh, from a profit perspective, but it is from a cultural perspective, uh, or this one person that I've never heard of. And it's very easy for you to rationalize away uh, the, just set and sell people down the river in, yeah. into torture chambers. Yeah, and I think there's immense, uh, there's immense, an immense appetite among the public for safeguards like this on social media channels, yeah. Twitter, and, and down the line. And I, I assume Elon Musk understands that. So uh, great point, Ryan. I think this is a good test. Right. And yeah, the, the, that's a really important yeah. point. Yeah. All right, Elon, put it on the roadmap, uh, get it done. And Emily, looking forward to what's on your radar. Emily, what's on your radar? Well, the Biden administration is on the verge of making a massive political and moral error, and nobody is talking about it. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg once denounced the policy that Biden's education department is in the process of resurrecting. It's that bad. So the Obama administration reinterpreted Title IX through dear colleague letters on sexual assault and gender identity. Again, it was such a disaster that RBG herself slammed the sexual assault regulations, quote, for not giving the accused person a fair opportunity 
to be heard, end quote. Now, remember, by the way, the administration made these sweeping changes, transforming the process for adjudication at every school that took federal money, basically every school, with a letter signed by DC bureaucrats. A report this month in the Washington Post says Biden's education department is on the verge of releasing its own Title IX guidance on both sexual assault and gender identity, predictably planning to shift back to Obama era rules. So let's, let's start with sexual assault. We talked about this last summer when Catherine Lehman was being confirmed to her post at the Department of Education. I've since learned how to pronounce her name correctly. Her prior stint at the Office of Civil Rights was such an abject disaster that when Betsy DeVos, one of the media's favorite targets in the Trump administration, revised the rules from layman's time under Obama, even the Washington Post editorial board applauded DeVos. It's a testament to the political machine that layman wasn't run out of town, but is now actually back in the same post under Biden. And as I noted last year, the guidance issued in 2011 and enforced adamantly by Lehman after she joined the department made federal funding contingent upon schools denying due process rights to accused students, denying cross-examinations, requiring a, quote, preponderance of evidence standard over the clear and convincing or beyond a reasonable doubt, and defining sexual violence broadly to include rape, sexual assault, sexual battery, and sexual coercion, but with zero definitions of what those mean. Emily Yaffe also reported in The Atlantic that that guidance, quote, also characterize sexually harassing behavior as, quote, any unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature, including remarks. Now, Obama's experiment did not go well. We have the evidence of that. A vast bipartisan swath of legal experts, including the ACLU, agreed on that. It was a travesty. But the department wasn't content to cast higher education sexual assault trials into chaos. Late in his term, Obama's education department also sent another Dear Colleague letter, this time forcing schools that take federal funding to interpret on the basis of sex to include gender identity. As The Post wrote this month, Title IX bars discrimination on the basis of sex in education, and the new rules would make clear this includes discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, among other things, according to two people familiar with a draft of the proposed regulation who spoke on the condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to publicly comment on the subject. That battle is obviously being fought bitterly in states around the country right now, from women's sports to intimate facilities like restrooms. The federal government wants to decide who wins that battle from its perch in Washington, D.C., overriding whatever localities has chosen, have chosen is best for their communities. If, like me, you feel enormous sympathy for kids suffering from gender dysphoria and just want them to be safe, and healthy at school, I can understand how it may seem like common sense to write gender identity into Title IX. Perhaps we may disagree on the value of gender affirmation as a treatment for dysphoria, but we do not disagree on the importance of protecting vulnerable children. Yet this sweeping federal decision will indeed hurt women in sports, of course, and in intimate facilities. Again, even if you support trans ideology broadly, sex is its own category for a reason. Title IX, which turns 50 this year, has long been seen as a major feminist milestone, especially for women's sports. So while Democrats celebrate Title IX this year, they're also actively weakening it and weakening the cause they claim to champion. The problem is not just isolated to one person here or there. This is affecting entire leagues and undercutting all of the blood, sweat, and tears women put into their sports and into their lives. Where are Republicans on this? 
Basically, nobody talked about the likelihood Biden's education department would do this back in 2020 when he was running. Nobody was talking about it. It wasn't an issue in the primaries or the general election, which is wildly disproportionate to its effect on the country. Conversation about it now is basically relegated to conservative groups and some conservative media outlets. In the absence of Republican courage to fight back when Democrats pick, when Democrats pick these fights, a whole lot of kids got hurt under Obama. They suffered. The culture lurched in a direction even most moderates are uncomfortable with. So when a draft regulation is now under review at the White House, why is the pressure now not so immense on the Biden administration that they're forced to defend this politically and morally terrible policy? It's a huge deal for the kids and a winnable fight the GOP is choosing to set out. Ryan, you'll note it's not even literally on my radar whether Democrats would pick up this mantle at all, but that's my question to you. These Title IX regulations on sexual assault, let's just start with that, were a disaster under the Obama administration to the point where Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the ACLU, tons of legal experts came out against them and then in favor of what Betsy DeVos did um, to shift them and change them and improve them. Why on earth why on earth is the Biden administration okay with uh, Catherine Lehman, you know, going back to the Obama years? It's not good for anybody, it seems. I remember when those DeVos regulations uh, came out, and nobody is a, you know, has more credibility as a card-carrying DeVos hater than me. I, mean, I, I actually helped say. publish a book about her, uh, which had a great title, "Schoolhouse Wreck." Very proud of that still. Uh, she's the worst. She's, she's just absolutely the worst. And I remember when those when her rules came out, reading them, being like, "This is actually pretty reasonable." Like, so I was definitely primed to think that uh, Betsy DeVos had you know rewritten rules around sexual assault that would you know allow perpetrators to 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 you know escape justice. But that wasn't the case. It was just some you know very basic protections to try to try and you know prevent situations like similar to the one that we had with Rolling Stone, which yes. and people in this people in the survivor justice world know that high profile false allegations are extremely damaging to survivors. Like that's that's far more damaging than requirements of kind of basic due process because you need the public to buy into the process so that once the process is complete, people then get some closure because they say, okay, you know, we have a system in place. It went through that system. This is what the system adjudicated. We as a community, we as a public, you know, have faith in that process. If people don't have faith in that process, then victims, survivors don't get, don't get closure and don't get justice either. And so why they would choose to go back to those, uh, I think has to do with the kind of concentration of uh, motivation among supporters and a, and a lack of motivation among opponents. In other words, the people who really strongly support these, you know, this, this new process, you know, it's their highest priority. Like this is the thing that they're driving through the bureaucracy. Whereas the people who are opposed to it are like, I'm opposed to that, but there are 99 other things that I'm working on inside the administration. And do I really want to be the person inside the administration who's the person who's like against tighter rules around sexual assault? So I think right. that's the bureaucratic dynamic that allows this to just 
take go another step forward, another step forward, another step forward. And then all of a sudden it's, you know, the, you're heading into the summer before the midterms. Like we're going to do this. And also we're going to pick a fight over gender identity in college sports. Yeah. I think that is exactly well said. The concentration of, of motivation and the lack of flexibility that those highly motivated people have. Um, one more quick question, Ryan, before we wrap. I'm curious as a, you know, this affects every single school, basically. If you're taking federal funding, this affects you on both levels, Title IX and, and uh, sexual assault and gender identity. What explains the media's like relative lack of uh, curiousness or coverage of this, do you think? And they, they're, I mean, the media is not great about covering things that are forward looking. I think, you know, mm -hmm. once once you get some cases, then you'll start to see the, uh, a media swarm and then you'll see some investigations into how did this possibly happen? Uh, that's you know, that that tends to be the media is much more kind of backward looking and needs needs like high profile it needs needs pictures. It needs names. It needs cases. They just don't operate kind of on the plane of ideas. Yeah, I know it's amazing even in that context because they have you know eight years of well not eight years right but, they could you know, go they have back five years right. of Obama right well that's yeah. a no but that makes a lot of sense um, next up the nonprofit at the center of the lab leak theory Eco Health Alliance is in hot water once again no surprise there we're gonna break it down for you next. Well, more than two years after the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're continuing to learn more information about its origins, but also about um, some government-funded institutions that might have stood in the way of investigations into those origins. Now, you can see right up there on the screen, House Republicans are now saying EcoHealth Alliance concealed COVID-19 research data in an effort to preserve their funding. We can go ahead and put the next graphic up on the screen. Virologists are pushing back on more regulation of viruses that have been made more lethal in the lab. This is all part of important questions that are being asked about the research that was done at those laboratories. And there are uh, people that are actually filing FOIA requests to try to get to the bottom of this. Um, and again, you can see they're filing a FOIA lawsuit against the State Department for documents related to a State Department investigation of the origins of COVID-19, the EcoHealth Alliance, gain-of-function research, dual use of concern, and the Global Virum Project. So now joining us is a reporter at US Right to Know, one of the groups filing those FOIA requests and fi that did file this FOIA request in question, Emily Kopp. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so sort of a, a long and complicated wind-up because the story is kind of convoluted. There are a lot of government institutions, there's a lot of funding, and there's been a lot of obfuscation um, on the behalf of people that are being funded by taxpayer money. So why don't you tell us about this latest FOIA request, what you're hoping to get out of it, um, and which you know, agencies you're pressing for the information? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the short answer is all of them. Um, all of <laughs> you know, public institutions subject to um, public information laws. Um, my boss, Gary Ruskin, has really been on this um, from the beginning. Um, and really our hope is to, um, you know, in contrast to some people who say uh, Chinese institutions will never give you the data you're seeking, um, what we know is that um, Western virologists, Western labs, Western universities, um, including here in the US, entered into a lot of collaborations um, with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, and so- And then covered it up. 
Yeah, well, um, that grant that the new letter from Republican um, Republicans in Congress really gets to the heart of the issue, I think, and um, sort of the poor oversight of this sort of research on enhanced pandemic um, pathogens. And so um, I'm often reminded of this famous biologist who said that the problem with modern society is that we have medieval institutions, but godlike technology. <laughs> and um, <laughs> that was really on display earlier this week at the National Institutes of Health, which had a public dialogue around what sort of regulation should be in place for um, you know, experiments that make viruses either more transmissible or virulent in the lab. Um, mm. And uh, oh. what we saw is that um, lobbyists representing life sciences professionals, but especially virologists, really pushed back on the idea that we even needed to take a second look at how we regulate this. While um, other, you know, highly credible experts say that this Eco Health Alliance grant. Um, you know, that funneled money from the NIH to the Wuhan Institute of Virology is really emblematic of the the issues and oversight here. Yeah, and, and what do we what do we know about that, about the work that EcoHealth Alliance did? Because a lot of this took place during the time when there was a legal pause on gain-of-function research. And what the Republicans are saying here is that if EcoHealth, you know, had been transparent about what type of work was going on in the lab, it would have been stopped. And so their suggestion is that their lack of transparency was related to their desire to keep the money flowing. The counter argument to more regulation is always more transparency. Say, like, we don't need to regulate this, let's just make sure everybody knows what's going on. But is there a fundamental contra contradiction, a fundamental problem in this space because what's going on is happening in, in these you know, very private labs at the farthest corners of the earth, Wuhan Institute of Virology being a perfect example, for instance, that people in you know, a, an, an office in suburban Maryland at the NIH would just have no access to and are relying you know, completely on the, the grantee to relay them accurate information. But if the grantee relays accurate information, they will then lose their grant. So what's the way out of this? Hmm. Yeah. Um... Hard to say, I think that is unfortunately a lot of um, the evidence that we're sort of uncovering through FOIA requests is that um, American institutions and American virologists and lab directors said that they had a lot more access than they actually did. Um, and so we see them sort of <laughs> privately worrying about the possibility of a lab accident at the Wuhan Institute of Virology while assuring the public, you know, I know Xi Jinglis, uh, you know, top coronavirologist at uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and that's not possible. Um, and I'll also say, I think you might actually be giving um, opponents of regulation too much credit, um, because what we saw <laughs> at this uh, meeting at the NIH earlier this week is, um, you know, some folks said, like, we are in favor of transparency insofar as it prevents, you know, congressional, congressional legislation, um, you know, further cracking down on our, our work. But there were others who um, said we should limit FOIA requests into this sort of work and we should um, limit the public's understanding of who is doing the work, basically, you know, citing concerns about um, the lab leak theory and saying that scientists could be subject to harassment. 
um, which is not okay, but I, I, you know, also think that transparency into work going on on um, pathogens made more dangerous to humans in the lab is also, you know, highly important. Um, and, you know, we saw lobbyists for virologists um, oppose more regulation and transparency in pretty stark terms. Um, so a representative of the American Society for Virology said that any sort of reform to the current regulations would be um, a solution looking for a problem and that we would risk tying two hands behind our back um, when it comes to the next pandemic. Um, and that's striking, right? Because the World Health Organization and the US intelligence community hasn't come to a firm conclusion about whether or not the most deadly pandemic in modern history came from a lab that received NIH funding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's such an important point. Um, and Emily Kopp, thank you so much for staying on top of this story. Uh, we really appreciate your insights this morning. Yeah, thanks for your interest. Of course. Next on Rising, Republican Senator Orrin Hatch passed away this week. We're going to discuss his legacy and more. Stay tuned. Former Utah Republican Senator Orrin Hatch passed away this week at the age of 88. He was first elected to the Senate from Utah in 1977, an amazingly long tenure. Now, William Doyle is the author of Titan of the Senate, Orrin Hatch, and the Once and Future Golden Age of Bipartisanship. We're lucky enough to have him joining us on the program today. Welcome, William. Hello. Thank you. It's very nice to be with you. You know, the title of your book actually raises one of the important uh, angles that uh, the, the sort of tenure of Orrin Hatch uh, can tell us about. Washington changed a lot over the course of his time in the Senate. Um, and focusing in on that particular question of bipartisanship might be instructive here. So I know this is literally the topic of your book, but uh, in, the, in, in the time we have, you know, what can we learn about how Washington used to function from the career of Orrin Hatch? Well, I think it can function like this again. Uh, if the American people start to reward more uh, bipartisanship when it's appropriate, and um, the career of Orrin Hatch is an excellent example of this. He was the longest serving Republican senator in American history. But he was also, according to a ranking by the Center for Effective Lawmaking, which is a uh, nonpartisan think tank at Vanderbilt University and University of Virginia, Orrin Hatch is the number one most effective senator of the modern era, past post Watergate, post Vietnam. Number two is Ted Kennedy, a man who Orrin Hatch fought with and loved alternatively as a brother, uh, depending on you know what day of the week it was and what they were working on. But those two men got together and did great things for the United States in a bipartisan way. And that that's what that's the story of my book. We know Orrin Hatch as a man who shaped the Supreme Court in a very conservative direction over the years. We forget sometimes that he championed Ruth Bader Ginsburg, her nomination, and he championed Stephen Breyer's nomination during the Clinton years. So like it was a very different time, wasn't it? But um, he also, I think, was a founding father of modern conservatism, along with Ronald Reagan, who was also very bipartisan when it counted. He did deals with Democrats, he negotiated with them, and when he did, and when Orrin Hatch did, 
I think the nation very often benefited a great deal because of their uh, willingness to compromise and their willingness to try innovative solutions to move the country forward. Did you uncover anything new about the relationship between him and Ted Kennedy? Because I remember when, when Ted Kennedy finally died of cancer in 2009, Orrin Hatch just bawling and you could you could just see the emotion written all over him you know dis, despite utah often being a place that produces kind of more liberal-minded republicans he was actually much more of as you said like a reagan republican so how was it that a liberal democrat like kennedy and he first got together well they were they served on the same labor and health committee and Orrin Hatch was outnumbered by liberal Republicans and liberal Democrats, and he realized that he could either try to stop everything or he could reach out to Ted Kennedy and try to make bipartisan achievements together. What he did. My, my theory is that when Republicans and Democrats clash and argue and fight and sometimes holler at each other, as Kennedy and Hatch did, the result can be a very creative solution. For example, Kennedy and Hatch put together the Children's Health Insurance Program, which helps tens of millions of lower income families today. They work together on the Americans with Disabilities Act. They work together on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And they worked together on a host of other issues that were very um, bipartisan. Now, uh, Hatch was always pushing for conservative uh, um, uh, uh, solutions. In other words, he wanted everything to be paid for. He wanted everything to, to be efficient. And he wanted it as much as possible to fit his vision of America. But the results are extraordinary. Uh, 800 bills passed, sponsored or co-sponsored by Arne Hatch, the largest amount of any, any living uh, senator. And I think that speaks again to his uh, uh, boldness in reaching out to the other side and getting things done not just trying to tear the other side down, you know, calling them Republicans or fascists or uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, uh, calling them fascists or um, Nazis or Marxists, which we often do today, but working together and pushing the country forward. Oh, yeah. C can you talk a little bit about his earlier life? My, my vague recollection is tons of children working as a security guard and also raising chickens to feed the family in Pennsylvania or something at the same time. <laughs> I, I might I might have some of that jumbled, but what was his what were, what was his earlier life like? Well, you know, I interviewed Arn Hatch extensively for this book, and he came from very modest, humble circumstances in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, you're right; he lived in an in a uh, renovated chicken coop that his father built for his wife in their early newlywed days. And uh, he came really from very little. And, but then he became a very successful trial attorney uh, in Salt Lake City. And he was ready for this wonderful career. And, and suddenly he got involved, interested in politics. Now, one thing he did in 1977 is extraordinary. He almost single-handedly mobilized the Senate to stop Jimmy Carter and the AFL-CIO from pushing together a very uh, liberal labor reform law, which Hatch thought would uh, uh, threaten the two-party system and threaten the existence of the Republican Party by opening up the floodgates of uh, much more cash to the uh, unions. So he stopped that. He said that he thought that the, uh, the FDR-Wagner Act was enough and that unions had, had very good protection that way. Now, when he did that, 
he suddenly became a conservative superstar. And he was almost like Reagan going to Russia or Nixon going to China. Suddenly, he had the credibility among Republicans to compromise and make deals with liberals and with Democrats to push the country forward. And I think the Americans with Disabilities Act is a perfect example of that. Another example is 1982, he teamed up with a Democrat in the House of Representatives, Henry Waxman, to co-create the modern generic drug industry, which has saved American uh, American consumers many, many billions of, of dollars over the years. And that was, again, bipartisan uh, intellectual combat resulting in a great achievement that endures to this day. He did have a, a somewhat mixed record in terms of conservatism and big business. He was the top recipient of lobbyist money uh, the year before he stepped down. He had a very close relationship with K Street. Um, but then again, he voted against the Export-Import Bank. He voted to kill the, the, the ethanol subsidy. Um, and he was sort of mixed on these things, supported the, the indefensible uh, sugar subsidy, as Tim Carney wrote in the Washington Examiner. Um, but he, he did have a, you know, for all of the sort of co conservative bona fides, he was fairly close with K Street. Um, did you learn anything new about his relationship with big business or anything to that effect? Well, he, you know, he, there's no question he believed in free enterprise. He believed that business helped Utah in particular. Um, and the uh, issue of lobbyist cash, there were two people who got more, who received more money than he did in recent years. And one of them was a woman by the name of Hillary Clinton. And <laughs> the other was a gentleman by the name of Barack Obama. Uh, now, you know, that that's the system that he was playing in. And um, you can criticize. I think, it, you know, you can find things if you're a liberal or a conservative, you can find things to criticize or tremendously admire in Orrin Hatch's career. My book, my book focuses in on the labor reform battle, the incredible drama behind the Americans with Disabilities Act which Orrin Hatch saved and rescued and pushed through at the last minute. It was all due to him, and that's according to disability activists and several other moments that capture him in action where it counts. And where it counts is behind closed doors when tough legislation is being hammered out um, and great achievements result from that. And I think anybody interested in politics or the Senate uh, can learn a lot from how he did things and how he sometimes made mistakes. He opposed the Martin Luther King holiday, which he regretted tremendously in uh, later years. He sometimes said things that, you know, where he would, uh, he would make an intemperate remark in the heat of the moment. And he usually apologized rather deeply for that. So he, um, he was pretty honest in, in those ways. But in the end, he was a very Christian, a very compassionate and a very interesting man with a tremendous work ethic, ethic. 42 years in the Senate. I'm not sure how you, anybody can do that. <laughs> right. No, I'm with you on that one. Uh, William Doyle, thank you so much for joining us today. The book is out in September, right? Yeah, that's right. September of this year, although you can certainly uh, pre-order it and um, it's available on Amazon and all the, the usual places and it will come out officially in September. That's right. Sounds good. Well, next up, we're going to discuss how the fossil fuel industry is fueling the coffers of federal lawmakers with David Sirota, founder and editor in chief of The Lever. Stay tuned for that. 
Well, we have new information, thanks to a friend of the show, David Sroda, on how the fossil fuel industry is fueling the coffers of federal lawmakers. And David Sroda, of course, joins us now to discuss. He is the founder and editor-in-chief of The Lever. This piece is available in The Lever. You can go check it out now. The GOP's new war on divestment. David, tell us about uh, what you're really describing in this new war on divestment. Well, the oil companies, oil and gas companies and coal companies are having something of a financing problem uh, when it comes to private investment. Uh, they have faced a divestment movement that has pressured public uh, resources, public agencies like pension funds uh, to stop investing, stop providing capital uh, to the fossil fuel industry for the purposes of, of oil and gas and coal exploration and, 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 and carbon emissions. Uh, and so the uh, oil industry, the fossil fuel industry, has gone to legislators across the country uh, in state legislatures uh, trying to get past bills that essentially uh, uh, say use the public agencies, the public uh, trough, the public pension systems to say that if you are a bank, if you are a company that is divesting from the fossil fuel industry, you will be ineligible to get investment business or other kinds of business from the state, uh, from the pension funds, uh, from anything that has public money in it. And so we've seen that kind of bill pass in Texas, uh, and now it's been replicated uh, throughout the country uh, in other Republican-run state legislatures. They're in various uh, stages of passing. Uh, and there's also a bill uh, in Washington uh, at, at the congressional level uh, to basically say uh, that financial advisors the idea is to try to prevent financial advisors from uh, taking into account uh, whether uh, investments for their clients, whether their investments are investing in fossil fuels. So it's kind of an anti-divestment push to use the government's resources to try to essentially punish companies uh, that, are, that divest from the fossil fuel industry. And David, Emily has talked about this on the show before, that there's this, this extraordinary new energy on, on the right to really dictate to private companies, you know, how they ought to do business. Uh, in the past, that's kind of been a little bit more subtle in the way that they've approached it. But you, you had that that uh, that that one bill that Marco Rubio endorsed that was like, you know, you basically trying to prevent companies from being woke. Uh, now they're saying they're, they they really want to get into the boardroom and and dictate in investment allocations. And so once they start doing that. Are they going to have a threshold like we insist that companies must put X amount of their investment right. into these oil companies? And at what point do they start telling you which oil companies they have to invest in? Like the 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 level of the kind of corporate welfare at work here is remarkable because it's it's now like a private right of action for corporate welfare. It's not just that we're going to give you all these public subsidies, but we're going to also force pr private into private companies to subsidize you too. Are, are there any constitutional issues here? And you know, is this a is this an ideological break or is this just being bolder than they used to be about it? Well, I'm not sure there's a constitutional question because the of course state legislatures have the power to say what kinds of investments can be made from public agencies, public pension mm -hmm. funds and the like. Uh, and so uh, in a sense, they're using the power of the government's purse to try to get the private sector outcomes that they want. Now, what's crazy about it, obviously, is that th this is a Republican Party that talks so much about the free market. Uh, and the idea of 
Republicans using the government's power to essentially provide a private sector bailout to the fossil fuel industry uh, and using using essentially the force of the government to do that. I mean, that that doesn't strike me as particularly free market. If banks and financial institutions want to move their money out of fossil fuels because fossil fuels, they believe fossil fuels are not a good long term investment. The idea of public pension systems uh, using uh, their resources to say no uh, or state legislature saying the public pensions have to invest uh, in companies that invest in fossil fuels. I mean, that is, uh, I, I'm not, I, it's sort of something like a command economy, right? I mean, and it's a good question uh, about, about where does a private right of action begin and end? Because it sure seems like this is a private right of action. Uh, and, and let's remember, this is because the fossil fuel industry has been admitting in federal filings that it it is having trouble getting more and more resources to fund exploration. In other words, the free market is actually working. It's moving money out of the fossil fuel industry. And the, it's now the Republican Party combating uh, that free market trend. I, I was going to say that is called cronyism. <laughs> uh, so, David, there's also, I think, an open question as to whether you start setting a precedent um, that can be abused by Democrats and Republicans going forward. I mean, this is kind of like you're almost getting towards an industrial policy from the very people who are you know, constantly laughing about the idea of industrial policy as socialism. Uh, but it, it seems like this is something that could be abused also by Democrats and Republicans might not even want to be moving in that direction because when corporatists Democrats get into office, who knows who they want to use this kind of mechanism to reward? I certainly think it's a dangerous precedent in the sense that, when, especially when you consider the campaign contributions, right? And yes. In our story about the massive amount of, of oil and gas industry campaign contributions and coal contributions going to the specific legislators who were then putting forward legislation uh, that says that the public pension systems uh, are not allowed to do business with banks that move their money out of the fossil fuel industry. I mean, there is a very kind of perfect circle there. Campaign contributions go in, the bills come out, uh, and the money uh, flows to companies that invest in fossil fuels or doesn't flow to uh, companies that don't invest in fossil fuels. That's the real crony part here. And I certainly agree with you that this is not just a, a potentially a Republican problem. This is a corruption problem, a transpartisan corruption problem. This precedent could be where if it, industries will now know put money into the political system and out, out will come policies that direct government money to specific places and pull government money out of other places, essentially based on the demands of the donors themselves. Right. Right. And at the state level, the way that states regulate activity that is outside of their scope is through this kind of pension, pension right. hole loophole, you could call it. The federal level, it's kind of Correct me if I'm wrong. In the federal level, it's if you get federal contracts or subcontracts, and so like, okay, we can't, we can't just by rule raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars, but we can say if 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 you get a federal contract, you have to pay at least fifteen dollars an hour, uh, and so using this same rationale, could a could Joe Biden, uh, you know, say, look, if you get any federal uh, contracts, you you have to do X. You have to divest from the fossil fuel. And he's not going to do that right now with gas prices where they are. But do you think this would set the precedent for a, a Democratic administration to say, you know what, we can now dictate private company behavior if you have a f federal contract and most of these 
major companies do and need to have you know, giant federal contracts. I mean, sure. Look, B- Biden has promised on the campaign trail. He promised, uh, as a related issue, hey, he promised that all federal contracts would be conditioned on companies agreeing to remain neutral in union elections. Uh, and he has not done that. I mean, he gave a ten billion dollar. His administration gave a ten billion dollar contract uh, to Amazon while Amazon was trying to block a union. But the point is, is that sure, uh, the president has the power to condition federal contracts on all sorts of things. Um, so. So now that power has not really been used all that uh, stringently at the federal level. Uh, we're seeing the Republicans at the state level kind of uh, pioneer this. Uh, and and look, some of some of us on on other issues lament the fact that that Joe Biden hasn't used that power, for instance, to deliver on the promise that I just mentioned. But sure, there the, I think potentially we're entering an era where there's kind of a competition for who is willing to use that power available to them, who in government is willing to use that power available to them uh, to do the things that they promised or on the bad side, do the things that their donors want them to do. Mm. David Sreda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, thanks to both of you. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Well, as other folks on the right know, it is exceedingly rare um, to find a think piece that sort of does the the zoo animal treatment of the conservative movement or folks at a conference uh, like CPAC or anything like that to get it right. And I think to actually uh, channel something and capture something that's really happening. And we're lucky enough that the writer of a recent piece in Vanity Fair that I think actually managed to do this, James Pogue, he is joining us now. He's a contributing editor for Harper's Magazine and author of Chosen Country, a rebellion in the West. Welcome, James. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, of course. So the, the ladies at my favorite po- podcast, uh, Red Scare, uh, took some issue with the implication that they were getting uh, Teal money, Peter Teal money <laughs> in the piece. Uh, but that aside, I think you did really narrow in on something that was happening at the, the National Conservatism Conference in Orlando. Um, if you could start just by telling us about J.D. Vance, who you've now developed somewhat of a relationship with as a reporter in the subject. Um, you profiled him for the American Conservative actually last year, another good piece. Um, what do you think your sort of back and forth with him, as it's included in this recent piece, can tell us about where the conservative movement is headed? Well, I think, to be honest, when I came to meet J.D. Vance, I thought he was kind of this Trumpy buffoon of a guy who was doing a sort of like more extreme but mainline kind of MAGA thing. Mm-hmm. and. I sat down with him for the first time in this diner, you know, in our shared hometown of Cincinnati, and I was kind of blown away. And which is not to say like, oh, all of a sudden I agree with this guy or all of a sudden like I'm deeply, deeply into what this message is. Of course not. But I realized that he was reading things and a part of an intellectual ecosystem that I actually had no idea about. And then he was channeling that and doing something very frankly, like sophisticated and complicated, trying to channel that and put that into a voice that would get him elected in a primary, which he may well do now. Mm. So do you do you see any of this similar energy on on the left? I thought your your approach to the right was fascinating. I feel like the right may, is maybe 10 years ahead of the left. And in, in some of these kind of uh, these strains kind of uh, kind of re- reinventing what it means to be progressive. Uh, do you see any parallels going on or do you think that this is unique around the world to the right? 
you know, I listened in, um, I listened in, we, we discussed podcasts here to a lot of left wing podcasts that responded to the piece. And I am sorry to report that the, the as a leftist, the response was <laughs> nearly like total disillusionment and to some degree, like kind of despair. Um, because a lot of leftists were looking at this energy that is coming out of this quote unquote new right ecosystem and thinking, why do we not have this? Um, and one thing that I think I've heard a lot of people saying that I tend to agree with is that the what someone on Twitter called the institutional suppression of the Bernie movement um, disillusioned people so much that a lot of them turned, um, as we mentioned, Red Scare, turned sort of from an identifying with what you might call the left towards this new right or this post left or whatever this weird kind of ecosystem that doesn't really have a name that I tried to name here. Um, but yeah, I mean, I personally am very disillusioned. I personally don't think we have it on the left and I wish we did. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and one of the things that I think sets your piece apart and Red Scare actually touched on this a little bit is you do seem to have a fundamental sort of respect and interest in the people that you're covering over the course of this piece. And the media really does like to demonize, as you said, your experience with J.D. Vance, thinking of him as this caricature. He's actually a very thoughtful, kind of mild-mannered guy. Um, but when you sit down with them or you, you spend time, you know, having a few drinks, uh, you know, sharing some cigarettes with them outside of the, the Hilton in Orlando, you, you get a different picture um, of, of what folks are actually, actually right. So as a leftist, um, what is your impression sort of of some of the folks that make up the new right? You talk about Amanda Melius, you talk to her in the piece, you talk to uh, Blake Masters, J.D. Vance, um, all kinds of people that you met down in Orlando. Uh, what is your basic impression of, of the kinds of folks that are involved in the movement? Well, to speak to that at first, I mean, I get in a lot of trouble for this and I've gotten in a lot of trouble for it, you know, throughout my career, but I'm just, I don't tend to think that people act in bad faith. Like, like some of us in the media do, and there's a certain level of once you get into politics, people act in bad faith. But generally I take my subjects in good faith. And like, that's a very hard thing to do as a left-wing journalist. Um, as regards to, you know, JD or Blake or um, this guy I talk about in the piece, Curtis Yarvin. Yeah. You know, I talk, maybe I shouldn't reveal this, but I talk to Curtis a lot, you know, via text. And throughout the course of the piece, I talk to Curtis a lot. Um, <clears throat> not because I'm, you know, sort of, you know, red-pilled by Curtis Yarvin in his, in his weird mind ways of convincing me that he's really right, but because I wanted to get stuff right. And I, you know, I would text him when I thought that I was mischaracterizing something he said, I would text him. And when I, he said something controversial, I would text him. Uh, and because of that, you know, I have a kind of relationship with him that is not personally close. We don't hang out. Um, and I think that that stuff can get very difficult. But my basic impression in this long answer is that people are really, really struggling to analyze why America is not working right now. Yes. And America is not working right now. And they're going to come up. Someone is going to have to come up with an answer for why that is. I personally don't really care about these left-right paradigms as much as I used to. That is not to say that I'm not a leftist, but I think that we have to start listening to some answers across a spectrum because this is not working out. And right. how much of this, how much of this movement is kind of a top-down top or kind of intellectually concentrated? 
how does it compare to say like uh, William Buckley in the 1950s in the National Review, or or is it driven kind of materially kind of from the bottom up among a, a kind of a new groundswell of of anger and populism among the among the right? Well, to go back to the first thing you guys um, asked me, I mean, you know, Red Scare got very mad at me for supposedly implying that they were taking money from Peter Thiel. In the piece, you will note that I specifically did not say they are taking money from Peter Thiel. But yes, there is a sort of, there is a lot more money on the right in general, whether from Thiel or anyone else. There's more money to sustain ecosystems and sustain thinkers and sustain young people to do intellectual work on the right than there is on the left. That's just, it's long been true. It's because um, on the left, you guys have Vanity Fair, NBC, CBS. <laughs> Hollywood. I would probably left. say that's not a left. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I have to think right. that's just, um, but yeah, I mean, I guess getting back to that, like I came to it, I, I will speak for my own self. I came to it by finding interest in the upward groundswell. I came to it by, you know, I met JD, I met Blake, and then I started listening to these podcasts and I was like, wait, what is going on? And so like, <laughs> You know, I'll name check, you know, like I started listening to this this thing, the Fed Post and Good Old Boys. And then you see on Good Old Boys these, you know, you get like Michael Anton, you know, veteran of a presidential administration talking to these guys. And you're like, wait, where did this come from? And the truth is, the truth is, uh, I think it would be hard to say. I think some of it was organic. I think um, obviously some of it when you get some of these people like Anton and stuff who shifted over, started talking about the regime. Curtis, of course, you know, has Curtis Yarvin, this guy, uh, has, you know, long, you know, had money because he worked in tech. He knew Teal, things like this. Uh, but to say that it's all like directed by some kind of overlord or intellectual, you know, godfather is not true. Yeah, and there's like 0% good reporting on the right, and I think that's part of the problem, as insignificant as the media often is, um, in why we don't understand each other as a country, because the media just cannot get the right right. And this piece really did, and I think that does stem from just a fundamental good faith approach. So James, great piece, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, appreciate it. Of course. We're gonna tell you what we are looking ahead to next week, coming up right after this. Big news on the student debt cancellation uh, movement this week and looking ahead to next week, that news could continue to be very big for a whole lot of people around the country. Jen Psaki was asked about the Biden administration's plans to cancel student debt after Senator Chuck Schumer said that he thinks Biden is getting closer to taking executive action that would cancel student debt. Here's what Psaki said. Follow up on the student loan forgiveness. Yeah. Um, you said that the president is looking at a, a range of options with regards to canceling some student debt. But is the president looking at any options for those students and parents who saved and sacrificed so that they wouldn't have to take out such massive loans? Is he looking at including them in relief retroactively? How would they be made whole if there was some sort of canceling of debt? You mean for people who have paid off all of their student loans? made sacrifices so that they wouldn't have to take out some of those loans? It's a good question. What I can tell you at this point is that there's legislation he'd be happy to sign for individuals who have $10,000 in existing student debt. Um, if Congress wanted to send that to him, he'd be happy to sign it, and he's looking at executive actions and authorities. But I don't have anything to preview on that front. 
It is a good question. And I think, in fact, it is the question, um, both politically and morally, for Democrats. The second question that a friend of the show, Philip, asked was basically also, how can you cut costs in higher education? Because this is basically a subsidy that provides no incentives for them to cut costs. I think Ryan and I are going to disagree bitterly on this uh, topic, which is great. Um, And my basic takeaway here is that the right, I think, has downplayed people concerned about their student loans as snowflakes and all of that. And that is not good. I think student loan debt is a travesty. The political establishment, I, yeah, I tweeted as much, they sold the middle class totally a false bill of goods about a college education being your ticket to the middle class. They gave big ed huge subsidies, which ended up making education unaffordable. The tuition costs have skyrocketed because of those subsidies. Um, and you can debate how much the subsidies have contributed to that rise, but they have absolutely contributed to that rise. Um, And so a, a cancellation, I think, to the point of the dad that confronted Elizabeth Warren very memorably in Iowa saying, I did everything right, you know, I, and I'm not, I'm being punished for basically paying things off. Um, you know, I, I think that frustration on a political level is, is something so deep that the left is underestimating. Um, and when it actually plays out, we'll see more of that. Um, but I also think it's, it's just going to continue to raise costs and make tuition unaffordable and make that ticket to the middle class less and less attainable uh, for folks going forward. And I think there are a lot of legitimate counter arguments, though, to make to that, to that dad. Bring him on. Stands up. I mean, one, one would be, uh, look, when, it was much cheaper when you went and uh, jobs were much more plentiful when you graduated. So it's sort of like these boomers who are like, look, uh, you know, I, I paid for my college with a paper route. It's like, good. Kids today would love to pay for their college with a paper route. It's $60,000 a year to go to a, a lot of these colleges. The second legitimate counterargument to that guy would be like, you're a dad, you have kids? So good for you, you made it. The system has like fallen apart since then and you wanna just throw your children into a completely broken system because you were able to make it through. Now, at the same time that I think that there are legitimate counterarguments, I don't think it's even worth making them. I think that in, in American politics, you always have to absorb resentment into your political calculus. And so if you're gonna be pragmatic, I think you actually have to grapple with that guy's concerns. And so there's a proposal, I think it was Washington State, that has tried to implement it. Uh, Let me try this out on you and see if we can get to a a policy that I think both sides would actually agree on. What I'd say is that, so cancel all the debt. And and then you do have to fix the the price problems that Philip talked about. Like the the runaway cost is obscene. But first the couple trillion dollars in debt that we've got to deal with. Let's say you cancel all of it. If somebody who got X amount canceled is making, let's say, more than $100,000 a year, then they owe a surtax, a little forgiveness surtax for the next 20 years or so. So let's say it's 1%, 2%. I think in Washington it was 1% or 2% until it's basically until that's paid off. So in some ways there's still paying their loan back, but you're only asking the people who genuinely benefited from getting these loans. If, if you're making less than $30,000 a year, then you're not going to pay those loans back anyway. You know, a huge portion of these loans are in default. So all you're doing at that point is rationalizing the system, saying, fine, look, your, your debt is canceled. Uh, we're going to take this black mark off your, off your credit score. We're going to, we're going to give you a chance to kind of 
lift yourself up, but we're not we're not going to you know try to throw another one or two percent you know surtax on top of your uh, on on top of your salary. So I feel like if people had to pay that surtax, then the the dad complaining that he did everything right wouldn't feel so bad. He'd be like, okay, well they're still paying their fair share. What do you what do you think? Well, then why not just instead of doing universal cancellation, do a cancellation plan that is graduated or contingent upon circumstance? Because it's so complicated. In fact, and we can talk about this later, they, he might end up having to cancel all student jet debt just because the system is broken. Like the servicers, because it's been paused for so long, haven't been keeping up with where people are. A bunch of the servicers have said, we don't even want to work with the Department of Education anymore. But it might logistically be impossible for the federal government to restart collecting the money again. If you add on top of that, oh, only collect it from people who made X amount of money over the last three years. And if they made you know 20% less than that, you collect 20% less. If they made 30% more than that, you collect 30% more. Like The more complicated you make it, the less likely it is that they can actually implement it. So it's just much simpler to say, you know what? Fine, we're done. This 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 was broken. It didn't work. Uh, there, there was obviously a design flaw in how we put this together. We're canceling it. Uh, if you got debt cancellation and you make more than hundred thousand dollars, you owe this surtax. Like that, the IRS can can actually handle. Uh, to have the Department of Education try to figure out this other thing, and and also, you know, people lose their uh, you know people lose their jobs all the time. People go through life crises like people people go through a couple years of making good money then they go through a couple years of of being in trouble so when they're going when they're getting into trouble do they have to then reapply to the department of education it's just like why create all this extra bureaucracy when you could just simply just do, do it this way this it would be my argument Right. And although I still see the, the surcharge as extra bureaucracy because it's different than what we have now, um, although I, that does make more sense. But I still think there's no uh, there's no responsible way to cancel everything if it is not coupled with cost control measures because it takes away incentives. You know, even if, it's, it's sort of like exactly what happened with Build Back Better. And that's why people like AOC were totally vindicated and not voting for it in that you lose the leverage if you cancel the student debt without cost controls, you're just going to give Big Ed, which I think is appropriately referred to as Big Ed, it is a special interest group that puts a lot of money into our politics. If you just give the incentive um, to continue raising costs without anything uh, to to start to stop that process in motion, um, I think it just gets worse and worse for kids down the line. And, yeah, and the paradox is that we're at a place where we might start seeing we're already seeing serious bankruptcies on for with liberal arts colleges yes and and over the next 10 years we might see a massive portion of them just vanish mm -hmm. uh and our and the us's you know great global strength has long been our education system our high, not public but our higher higher education system both public and private and so we're going the wrong direction on that. You know, we're, we're getting more bloated administrations at universities yes. that are surviving. And instead of seeing more schools, because, you know, what you need to do is you, you, need to have, you need to have many more, particularly public schools that are more affordable that then drive down the, the private costs. Instead, we're seeing many fewer. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's, the, that's the crisis that needs to be dealt with, because just like when a plant closes that take, let's say there's a town of 5,000 people and a plant that employs 500, which is actually almost like precisely my hometown. Uh, if that plant closes like that, 
that whole that town also collapses. But the same is true with universities. If you have a town of you know ten thousand people and a, and a two thousand person university, that university is kind of the beating heart of that of that town. And as we start to see closures of these around the country, you're going to just see more and more collapse, particularly in in rural America. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's no question about it. This is going to continue to be big news throughout the midterm cycle. Um, it's a priority of the Biden administration. It's certainly a priority of the left. Um, and so it's going to continue playing out politically. And certainly, I think we'll hear more about it in the week ahead. Ryan, I really hope you are feeling better. I mean that sincerely, uh, even though I think it's hilarious this happened at a fish concert. <laughs> yeah, what, I mean, if you're going to get COVID, you know, where better place to get it than at a fish show? Do it big. Uh, well, uh, seriously, I hope you feel better, Ryan. Um, had another fun episode here of Rising Fridays. This is a great way to start the weekend. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen well on the go, we're also available anywhere you listen to your podcasts. So make sure to check that out as well. We will be back with you next Friday, and hopefully Ryan will be here in person with bells on. Fingers crossed. Happy weekend, everyone. See you there.